0: Turn with me to Micah chapter 6, would you please? Micah chapter 6. This is the kind of text you need about a week's notice to find. (laughs) I will help you. It's in the Old Testament. Um, It's close to Jonah. If you find Jonah, go right. Take a right turn from Jonah and you'll stumble and find your way into the book of Micah. Thank the Lord for indexed Bibles um, that help us in finding these Old Testament texts. According to the Index of Leading Cultural Indicators, amid all our comfort and convenience and affluence, we live in a nation that um, is characterized by increasing mayhem and woe. All the statistics would indicate that. In many places, crime is up. Educational standards are struggling and sometimes down. On occasion, our government seems confused and uh, divided by partisan, self-serving interests. Uh, We're divided in almost every way imaginable. Historian and author Arthur Schlesinger has called this the the untying of American life, the untying of American life. Many of you familiar with a conservative columnist and author by the name of George Will. And he describes this as the fact that we're suffering from a kind of slow motion barbarization that we live in a fractured world is obvious. That things are not the way they're intended to be is self-evident. We do indeed live in a fallen world, but it seems that the threads that bind the tapestry of culture are unraveling. Recent surveys indicate that religion in America is on a slow downgrade. And yet there are some recently in uh, newspaper articles, magazine articles, national publications and political blogs and so on, That would actually blame religion for the problems that we face in America. But an 8th century prophet by the name of Micah has a fresh word, a vital vision of real religion that joins heart and soul, that joins body and soul, that joins heart and hand, that weds perfectly our profession as well as our practice. And you'll find that fresh word from an 8th century prophet in the 6th chapter of Micah. And to shorten the text somewhat this morning, I'm going to begin to read in verse 6, verse 7. But the real text before us this morning is found in verse 8. This is God's word. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousands rivers, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This text is a... It's an off quoted text in many different circles. It contains a triad of kingdom values that give shape and contour to a full-bodied, full-throated, full-orbed biblical religion that serves as salt and light in any culture at any time. This is vital religion made plain, made obvious, and written in large letters. The sixth chapter of Micah's prophecy is somewhat of a dramatic court scene in which The case is called from the throne room of heaven in verse one. Hear now what the Lord is saying in verse one. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. It's as if all of teeming creation is summoned into this courtroom as uh, evidence or as witnesses to the prosecution. The prosecution presents the evidence in verses three, four and five. My people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Ask the Lord. Answer me. Indeed, he says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And so the Lord is reminding them of all that he has done for them in times past. In short, God is calling his Old Testament people, people who knew him, Those people who had entered into a gracious covenant with God, those whom God had chosen and brought into fellowship with himself in a very real sense, God is bringing them before his bar of accountability. And he says, you know what I've called you to do. I've called you to do justice. I've called you to love mercy. And I've called you to walk humbly with me. And I would submit to you this morning, that's what real religion looks like. That's what vital religion that joins both heart and hand together that connects both our profession as well as our practice. That's what it looks like. It looks like doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. C.E.B. Cranfield, one of those English commentators that has um, four names, says it's one of the great biblical definitions of true religion. It's shorthand. He goes on to say for balanced biblical living that moves us from an immobilized spectatorship to transformed and transformative kingdom living. We only have time this morning for one aspect that's located in the text this morning. And that's the first one that's in the text. And that is the Lord has called us to do justice. Justice translates one of the great Old Testament Hebrew words, mishpat. There are many different applications and many different definitions that, depending on the context, would shade the meaning. But very simply this morning, mishpat, or justice, is summarized as rendering to each person their due, giving honor to whom honor, respecting and recognizing obligations, and conforming ourselves to those obligations. Justice is descriptive of the nature and character of God. It's descriptive of his righteous reign and rule. The psalmist has said in Psalm 33 that God loves righteousness and justice. Speaking through his prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, I, the Lord, love justice. The psalmist in Psalm 97 says that justice is the foundation of God's throne. And when God brought his Old Testament people into the land of promise, speaking through Moses he says that I execute justice for the orphan and the widow and show his love for the alien by giving food and by clothing. This is the very nature, one aspect of the full orb characteristic of our God, that he loves and delights in justice. And it's a characteristic that as the Lord's people, God calls us to embrace and to pursue and to practice. Conservative uh, thinker Russell Kirk has described the liberating order and stability that God's revelation provides to us. We're given the possibility of freedom and the potential of becoming fully human because of God's truth, believed and acted upon and applied, teaches us how to live before God and teaches us how to live in relationship with one another. It provides the parameters of good living, of living a good life marked by peace and marked by godliness and the Lord's indictment. And Micah chapter 6 is due in part because of the injustice of the practices of the people of God in the Old Testament. It's due in part because they were not living out the implications of their relationship with the Lord. Uh, Turn uh, with me to Micah chapter 3 for just a moment and let me take a minute and illustrate how practical and how tangible this idea of doing justice is in the Old Testament, indeed in the rest of the Bible, but specifically in the context of Micah. Look at chapter three of Micah's prophecy and uh, verse one. This is the Lord speaking and he says, And I said, here now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? And then what he describes in verses two, three, and four basically is, is the financially Powerful, Flaying the flesh of the weak and the vulnerable. He says in verse 2, You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who strip the flesh of my people and strip off their skin from them and break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in the kettle, then they will cry, he says, but I will not answer. Basically, what the Lord is describing here is the injustice that was being committed among the people who called him by name in which the powerful were preying on and taking advantage of the vulnerable. He goes a little bit further down in verse 9, and he says again, Hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. And then he describes in verse 11, leaders pronouncing judgment for a bribe, and priests instructing for a price, and prophets divining for money. And yet, here's the irony of it. Here's the irony of it. In verse 11, it says, yet they lean on me. There is an outward form of religion, but without a corresponding reality. They were worshiping the Lord, but the end of their worship stopped as they exited the temple. And in chapter 6, the Lord has called his people to an account. He summoned them to the bar of accountability. Turn over to Micah 6 again, please, just a moment. You'll find the same thing. The same kind of issue in Micah chapter six, where in verse 11, the Lord says, well, verse 10, he says, is there yet a man in the wicked house along with treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed in verse 11? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights for the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Basically, the short measures and the wicked scales and deceptive weights are, were means of exchange. Like if you travel abroad and there's a, there's a monetary exchange. Well, in that system, there were scales of measurement. So that if you, you bought something and it was weighed and you paid for it, the, the gold or the silver, the medium of exchange was weighed and what he's saying is that the merchants were tinkering with the scales so that when they produced the product, they were taking advantage of the buyer. About the only thing I remember from college economics, uh, two things, actually. Well, three things. The first one is I didn't want to be an economist. The second thing I remember is you can't have guns and butter. I can't explain that, but that's what he said. And uh, caveat entor, buyer beware. Well, buyer beware. Uh, Here's an analogy. Have you opened a bag of potato chips lately? (laughs) You open this huge bag of chips and guess what? They're all in the bottom. What is up with that? Uh, Have you opened a box of cereal lately? And here's the disclaimer on the box. Contents may settle in shipping. You bet, it takes a magnifying glass to find the contents as they settle in the bottom of the box. Here's another illustration of really what's in view here. Uh, my dad, as a teenager, worked at a, in a small town grocery store in the, in the meat department. And uh, the owner of the meat department, Mr. Vest, would soak the meat in water so that it weighed heavier. Dishonest scales, unjust measures. It's another way of saying that there's 12 inches to a foot and 36 inches to a yard and 16 ounces to a pint. It's the idea of measurement and what the Lord is saying of his people in Micah chapter six. is you've tinkered with the scales and you've done it because you've been motivated by greed. And here's the key thing. I mean, here to me, this really is the devastating thing in this passage. Look at whom the Lord is indicting in verse 2. The Lord has a case against whom? His people. His people. In verses 3 and 5, He calls them My people. Guys, I want you to understand, the Lord is not addressing them out there. In the Old Testament, He's not addressing the Moabites, the Philistines, the Ammonites. He's addressing the people who were the recipients of a gracious covenant. He's addressing the people who had the temple ordinances. He's addressing the people who had the law of God, who had the priesthood, who heard the word of God, who knew the liberating power of God. He's addressing us. He's addressing us that we should do justice. That we should pursue and practice justice. He's speaking to those who actively worshipped him. In verses 6 and 7. The burnt offering indicated total dedication to the Lord. The yearling calves were the creme de la creme of the sacrifice. The best of the flock, they were bringing it. The reference to thousands of rams and rivers of oil were equivalent to extravagant, outlandish displays of worship. And yet there was not a reality in the ritual. There was not a corresponding practice and pursuit in their profession. Justice is the character and nature of God. It's what he calls us as his people to practice and pursue. And in a very real, practical, tangible way, doing justice makes visible the character and nature of our God. Paul in Ephesians talks about the riches of God's grace. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now walk worthy of that call. Live out the call of God upon your life. Jesus in Matthew 22 has brought a coin by those who would accuse him and uh, says, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus says, whose inscription's on the coin? And they said, Caesar. Now listen to his response. He said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. The Bible recognizes three spheres of authority. It recognizes the home. It recognizes the church. It recognizes government. And doing justice means that we respond to those three realms as the Lord has called us as his people to respond to the authority of those three realms. In very concrete terms, it means... Paying just wages on time because the Lord rebukes that in the scripture. It means paying financial obligations on time because it's wickedness not to. It means working as Christ pleasers and not man pleasers and without complaint in Ephesians 6. It means that as God's people, our expense accounts reflect reality. They're real expenses incurred and not padded. It means that sick days represent days that were sick. And it means distinguishing and knowing the difference between my property and company property. Doing justice has family implications. It means as moms and dads, as parents, we pursue and fulfill responsibilities for our children. Of providing for them, educating them, clothing them, feeding them, providing a Christian world and life view framed by the wisdom of God. It means providing appropriate discipline. But it has... Implications for sons and daughters as well who desire to honor the Lord and to love him by honoring and loving those whom the Lord has placed over them in their lives. What an enormous responsibility to be God's people. What a grand and gracious privilege to be God's people, to live out the implications of the nature and character of God. Doing justice has implications for every realm of life. It has implications if you're a student. It means that term papers reflect honest research. It means that answers on exams are your answers. It means that you go where you say you go and you're with whom you say you're with. It means that there's a corresponding reality between who you are at home and in the halls of school and in the locker room and online. And you might be tempted at this point to say, well, that's grand and good, but where's the grace in all this? After all, we are grace even. Where is the grace in all of this? Well, can I tell you this morning that doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God is the God-ordained response to grace? The very fact that in Micah chapter 6 he addresses these people as my people is an amazing grace, is it not? They were his people by Sovereign election in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, I did not pick you because you were many. I did not pick you because you were mighty. I did not pick you because you were grand and great and glorious. I picked you because I set my love upon you. To be the people of God is an amazing act of divine grace. Where's the grace in this text? Well, in the opening part of the text, there are four incidents from Israel's history That reveals stunning displays of redemptive grace. He had rescued them from slavery in Egypt in verse 4. They had been in servitude over 400 years. And Exodus 2 says that God heard the cries of his people. And he raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses goes back. And listen, I will be really disappointed if Moses doesn't look like Charlton Heston in heaven. I just cannot separate that movie and... Charlton Heston and Moses. When I see Moses in the Bible, I see Charlton Heston's face. God forgive me, but I do. He sends Moses back and through incredible displays of divine power, God liberates them. In verse four, God says, I've raised up leadership for you to lead you, Moses, Aaron and Miriam by name. I reverse the curses of Balaam in verse five. And I led you from the wilderness into the land of promise. All of those Old Testament displays of divine grace, but are types and foreshadows of a coming day of grace in which God would take your stubborn, stony heart and my stubborn, stony heart. And through the grace of regeneration, give us a new heart in which God would bring us from death to life in which he would inscribe our names in the Lamb's book of life. He would call us out of darkness into light. He would give us the gift of eternal life and the fullness of his Holy Spirit. Where's the grace in all of this? Oh, it's oozing with grace. It's oozing with the grace of a loving God who's brought us into fellowship with himself and now says to his people, live out the implications of grace. Bear my nature. Bear my Character and live out what I've done in your life. Justice is the way of life our Redeemer prescribes. It's the rightful action or reaction. It's the appropriate mode of life that's rooted firmly in the revealed will of God. And in our postmodern culture, in which your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and you're entitled to your opinion, God in timeless grace has said, I have shown you, O oh man, what is good. It's not left to the imagination. It's not left to consensus or public opinion surveys. He says, I've shown you what is good. The Hebrew word good tov, literally means what is pleasing, delightful and desirable. I've shown that to you. And it's linked to the unchanging character of God. It is, it is the truth, friends, that grace is never lawless. Grace is never without rule. Grace is never without the reign of God. You know, Wednesday night, Dr. Young is leading us through the book of Romans. And Lord willing, Sunday we'll get to Romans chapter 12. And when we get there, barring the Lord's return, when we get there, (laughs) let's see, I'm projecting this. is I'm projecting about 2010 or 2011. But um, when we get there. This is what Paul will say in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. He says, I beseech you brethren, therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. The therefore is a result, a result of what Paul? Present myself to God as a, as a living sacrifice fully devoted to the Lord? Boy, that sounds an awful lot like moralism and legalism. No, 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 no. What has just proceeded is 11 chapters with a grace that brims over in salvation and redemption. So great a grace, as the hymn says, demands my all. I give myself to you in response to a lavish love that has been poured out upon me in the riches of your grace. Ephesians chapter 4, when... Paul says that you and I are to walk worthy of the Lord. That's a response to grace in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Grace that has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. A grace that sent Christ to redeem us from all of our sin. To liberate us from the penalty of sin past, present, and future. It's a response to a grace that sent the Holy Spirit to seal us into a coming day of redemption. And the response to such Magnificent displays of grace is that we're to walk worthy of the Lord who has saved us. And listen, we're not left to figure out what that means. Because in Ephesians 4, Paul begins to spell it out. He says, stop lying and speak the truth. Stop stealing. Work with your hands and be able to give to those generously who are in need. He says, stop giving in to anger. Don't let corrupt words come out of your mouth, but speak grace and peace to benefit and bless others. He says, husbands, it looks like this. Loving your wives even as Christ loves the church. Wives, he says, it looks like this. Living in harmonious honor with your husbands. Sons and daughters, it looks like this. Giving honor unto moms and dads because it's a pro- it's a commandment with great promise. Moms and dads, it looks like this, bringing your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I'm telling you, we're not left without a compass. We're not left without an anchor for our souls in a postmodern culture that is unraveling at the seams. God has given us a sure word of promise and a sure word of authority. Doing justice is nothing less than the spirit-prompted and empowered response to the riches of God's grace. Well, what does doing justice look like in real life? Well, I can tell you what it looked like in 1946. When at age 17, my father came to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Trusting nothing but the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His heart being changed. One day while putting water-soaked meat in a balance and looking over the counter at impoverished people. He goes to Mr. Vest, the owner of the grocery, and says, Mr. Vest, with all due respect, I cannot continue to weigh meat heavy behind this counter. It's just not just to do it. And Mr. Vest said, very well. And I think you're done here. And he was done. Is that a legalistic response that my father manufactured to get right with God? To shape up, to earn brownie points in heaven? No, it was the response of a changed heart. He was doing justice because his heart had changed. Here's another real-life illustration of what it looks like. Bob worked for Memphis Light, Gas and Water for 20-plus years. He was a riotous man. He was a brawler. He was an adulterer. And he was also a thief. He was a part-time electrician. He did electrical work on the side and... He would take copper wiring from job sites and store it in his attic and use it when he needed it for his side electrical work. And the Lord saves him. The Lord changes his heart and opens his eyes. He unstops ears that are deafened to the cries of his conscience. And he realizes one day in the attic looking at that copper wire, he needs to do something about that. And so he makes an appointment with upper-level management. Twenty-plus years, his pension on the line, the sole support of his family, making a good living. He goes in and he says, I need to tell you something. And he basically shared with them how for 20-plus years he had been pilfering copper wire. They all looked at one another in stunned amazement. And They didn't know what to make of that kind of integrity. And they said, well, <clears throat> why don't you just bring the wire you have back and we'll forgive you. And will this continue? He said, absolutely not. And he proceeded to tell them how the Lord had changed his life and had changed his heart. Is that legalism? No, no. No, that's not legalism. That's the grace of God working in a man's heart to where he loved the Lord more than he loved his job. He loved Christ more than he loved the security. He loved to honor and please his Savior more than he loved the pension plan. That's doing justice. That's loving mercy. That's walking humbly with our God. What does it look like? It looks like Star Parker, an African-American woman, leaving welfare fraud behind in Southern California because she went into a church one day. And heard the gospel at Crenshaw Christian Center in a tough area of South L.A. And the Lord changed her heart and she realized she needed to make some changes and some amendments. She had had four abortions. And as God began to work in her life, she realized that he's called me out of this life and my life has changed. And so she covenanted with the Lord that she would live in abstinence until the Lord, according to his will and timing, Would provide for her a husband. And today Star Parker is a vital, vibrant witness of Christ. Married with children. Was all of that to somehow score points in heaven? No, no. It's a response of God's grace. It's the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And what does it look like in your life? I don't know. But I can tell you this. If you turn over on the back of your worship Outline or your worship folder this morning, your bulletin, and you write down the roles that God has called you to. He's called us as men, as husbands and fathers, employers, employees. Ladies, if you write down the roles to which the Lord has called you, wives, mothers, whatever, you write down, if you're a son or a daughter, the Lord has spelled out what is right and what is honorable and what is pleasing in your life. And out of a response to grace, you say, yes, Lord, I will give exactly what you've called me to do as you enable me to do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now, very quickly, in closing, on perhaps another occasion, we'll talk about loving mercy and we'll talk about what it really means to walk humbly with your God. But I will tell you this, that justice without mercy becomes hard headed and hard hearted. It becomes pharisaical. It becomes judgmental and censorious. It becomes mean-spirited, filled with religious hubris. So this triad of real religion has justice, doing justice first. But look what it's followed by. It's followed by loving mercy. Reveling in and rejoicing in the mercies of God to us in Christ. It's followed by walking humbly With your God, which I think really walking humbly with God leads to loving mercy because we know the kind of mercy that we've received, continue to receive, and will need to receive until Christ comes again. But mercy without justice is soft-hearted, soft-headed, and sentimental. It's amorphous and formless. John Bradford, the English Puritan, his house faced a narrow path down which condemned criminals were led in England to the gallows. And Bradford in his letter says that he would often stand at the window and he would watch those men winding down that narrow path. And he would weep, tears coursing down his cheeks. And he was heard to say audibly, but for the grace of God there I go. It's justice saturated with mercy. Because we know our own hearts. In 1917, the New York Bible Society commissioned former President Theodore Roosevelt to inscribe some message of comfort and hope in the text or in the front of New Testaments that they were going to be distributing to soldiers as they were shipped to the European theater and an enormous conflict, which we know as World War One. The Kaiser was on the march. Men were moldering in trenches in the European theater. Theodore Roosevelt, the man who taught a fifth grade Sunday school class for over 30 years, taught that class while he was president of the United States of America. Read up to six books a week. A, a prolific producer. What do you think he wrote? What would you write? He wrote Micah 6, eight. He has shown you, O man, what is good to do justice. And he elaborated on what that would look like and how you would treat the fallen enemy and those captured. What it would look like in that theater of conflict to love mercy. And what it would look like to walk humbly with your God. Our city, our communities, our nation, the world is crying out for real religion it doesn't end at the church door. It's informed and encouraged and edified. But it goes through those double doors and it lives as salt and a light. Jesus said when the salt loses its saltiness, its ability to savor and to season, it's good for nothing. And the only thing, the only thing that will retard and reverse the putrefaction of our culture is people like you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Fathers, we bow in prayer this morning. Might you use the words of this text to speak to our hearts, to show us how in the several and varied contexts of our lives. These truths would apply to us and do more than that, Father. Would you refresh us and renew us, revitalize us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live out the implications in our communities, in our homes of doing justice, of loving mercy and of walking humbly with you for Christ's sake, for his honor, for his glory. And in his name we ask it. Amen.